Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. This Australian Investors Podcast episode is quite unique. In it, we have two guests. The first is Kanish Chug of ETF Securities, the issuer of two of Australia's first cryptocurrency ETFs, being the Ethereum ETF, which trades under the ticker symbol EETH, and the Bitcoin ETF from ETF Securities and 21 shares, which trades under the ticker symbol EBTC. These cryptocurrency ETFs are a modern innovation and a way for investors to get exposure to the cryptocurrency asset class. In this podcast, Kanish takes us through the development and security around Bitcoin and Ethereum ETFs and how they worked with regulators to construct these uh, different types of ETFs. And then in the second part of this conversation, around 10 to 15 minutes into the conversation, I chat with Ophelia Snyder. Ophelia is the co-founder of 21Shares, which takes its name from the number of Bitcoin that will be available in circulation once all Bitcoin are mined. Affiliate's company, 21Shares, has attracted over $2 billion in investments globally and has also attracted great talent like Kathy Wood from ARK Investment Management as a director on her board. Forbes has estimated that 21Shares, the company, is worth around $700 million and as such has recognized Affiliate as Forbes one of 30 under 30 in the finance category. So this is a fascinating conversation with an entrepreneur and an ETF provider coming together to create an innovative ETF structure around cryptocurrencies. This conversation is more of an exploration and not necessarily an endorsement of cryptocurrencies by myself or the team. However, if you like this type of conversation, I am fascinated by it. So if you want to reach out and let me know where I should go with this exploration of cryptocurrencies, please Find me on Twitter at Owen Rask or send me an email podcast at rask.com.au. Without further ado, here's Kanish Chug of ETF Securities, followed shortly thereafter by Ophelia Snyder of 21Shares. So Kanish, why was now the time to launch crypto ETFs? If you were to ask, you know, um, Graham Tuff, also the executive chairman of ETF Securities, he's been looking at crypto ETFs for about four or five years. He was saying to us the other day, that the first time he drafted a prospectus or a product disclosure statement, um, which is essentially a, a regulatory document, and, you know, the framework that you need for issuing a fund, he did it at the time when Bitcoin was $500 US. So a lot, you know, a number of years ago. Um, however, you know, when you look at globally in terms of financial markets, ETF issuing of, um, you know, issuing of ETFs around, around crypto um, and Bitcoin and Ethereum, there's been a long lead time built in by the regulators. So it's one down to the regulators and here in Australia, it's, it's ASIC, um, it's the, you know, the exchanges, just getting themselves comfortable around the idea of crypto ETF, how they would operate and you know, the structure and you know, thinking about it from the investor standpoint. So I think here in Australia, it's been just a case of you know, going through the, um, you know, dotting the I's, crossing the T's, as I say, um, with, with regulators and, and making sure the, from a regulate, regulatory standpoint that they're happy with the funds that are being issued. And also from our end, you know, we've taken a long time to actually, you know, launch these funds. We've been working on these funds 
and with our strategic partner 21 shares for close to 12 to 18 months now. Mm. So there's a long lead time because when you think about crypto, there's a lot of concerns, questions that people ask, you know, is my crypto going to be secure? Is it physically backed? Where is my crypto going to be stored? You know, all those questions. So we wanted to make sure that we had the strongest, best quality fund for investors when they're looking to invest in this new asset class. Mm. So yeah, obviously security is really important. Um, how does, so you've obviously got 21 shares and we've spoken to Ophelia and then mm-hmm. you guys providing the ETF here in Australia. How do you ensure that, you know, security is paramount? Like what do you guys have to do to ensure, um, you know, the Bitcoin or the Ethereum's held um, securely, can't be hacked, um, and also the checks and balances just that go on behind the scenes for investors to give them some peace of mind here? Yeah, so I think from a, on a product standpoint, the best way to think about our, our Bitcoin ETF and our Ethereum ETF is to look at our gold ETF, our physical gold ETF. So that is um, G-O-L-D. So that is a physical backed gold product. The gold is stored with a custodian, which is JP Morgan. It is 100% attached to the unit trust and therefore the investors. They have essentially an entitlement and an ownership on gold. That same framework and structure is how we've applied it to the Bitcoin and the physical Bitcoin and the, the, the Ethereum ETF. So it is backed by actual Bitcoin for the Bitcoin product and backed by actual Ethereum for the Ethereum ETF. Now, you talked about security, you talked about framework. The Bitcoin and the Ethereum that back both of those ETFs, they essentially will be held with a custodian. And that custodian is Coinbase. So they are the leading providers in terms of custody services around cryptocurrencies. So rather than going with, you know, a traditional investment bank, we decided to go down that path and partner up and use the custodial services of a crypto custodian because it's just a different way that the assets need to be held. You know, with our gold ETF, we actually have physical bars, JP Morgan have a framework around that. They're 100% backed, you know, the ETF is 100% backed by those physical bars. They do their checks and balances around those physical bars. They do audits on that. You know, we as a fund run an audit on the, on the gold and the vault. Um, and there's insurance applied in that sense as well. And here in the cryptocurrency space, you want the same approach. So we partner up with, with um, Coinbase for that. Now, the actual cryptocurrencies that are backing these crypto ETFs, they're in what's called cold storage. So they're in offline wallets. And that's really important to understand. And, and essentially what cold storage means is it's essentially not touching at any point the internet. So there will be some point in the creation process or when we're creating new units in ETF or we're redeeming units in ETF that the actual cryptocurrencies will actually touch the internet. But for the best part of what we're doing is we're essentially making sure that they sit in cold storage. So it limits their ability to be hacked. Now, those you know, cold storage, they're in military grade facilities. So you think about a gold vault, it's the same sort of approach. This is where the current cryptocurrencies will be held offline in cold storage, you know, in military grade um, facilities to ensure that those that that cryptocurrency can't be hacked cannot be stolen um and we are trying to put as much you know measures in place from that perspective and then you go down the path in terms of making things even safer 
is that there are private keys to the wallets. So we, you know, talk about cryptocurrencies. Cryptocurrencies are held in digital wallets, mm. and you need private keys. Now, that's a big thing that we everyone talks about. You know, the keys, the private keys that investors have on their cryptocurrencies when you when they try to physically invest in Bitcoin or Ethereum, etc., and they lose those keys, and essentially they've lost everything. Well, again, from our perspective, you know, those keys are sharded. You know, so they're basically spread around the different participants that are operating and managing this fund. Um, there's security measures in place for those. There's multiple layers of sign-off, and you know, we've even got facial recognition technology in this. So you would actually say that the custodial framework and the way in which the cryptocurrency is held is by far in advance to how we normally held, you know, the custodies of our equity funds or even our gold funds, which is just operating on a different, you know, older platform. You know, the way in which technology is used to hold cryptocurrencies is, you know, so far advanced. And I, I suspect we may end up using a lot of the, the framework and the foundations of this um, security aspect in custodials and custodian services um, for a lot of our other funds in the future as well. Right, that's interesting. How about, um, I got asked a question before, which was just basically around um, the auditing process, like who kind of like checks and balances this stuff? Yeah, so with a lot of that, we have um, in place, you know, for, through Coinbase, um, checks and balances done from their end. Um, there's also insurance that the um, custodian, so Coinbase actually apply on the Bitcoin that we hold or the Ethereum that we hold as well. So at the end of the day, what we want to do is we want to make the fund as secure as possible and as easy as possible for an Australian investor to go, I want to invest in Bitcoin. I want to invest in Ethereum. How do I do it? I don't want to open up a digital wallet. I don't want to trade on an unregulated crypto exchange. And we've seen examples of um, those you know, collapsing and investors being left out in the lurch losing their cryptos um, or if they lose their key they can't access their cryptocurrencies anymore you know i've heard of examples from clients um, that are well-regarded investment professionals who have done who have, that's happened to them you know they've held it on their computer and their computer's just broken down and it's, they've lost everything and they've lost upwards of you know two three bitcoins which in today's market could be worth upwards of 150,000 Australians. you know it's a lot of money to be staking on you know, your security and the risk that you have just on a one device or, you know, an exchange that's unregulated. I think that's the key part here is you now have a regulated, authorized investment vehicle from the Australian perspective where you can get physical exposure and actual physical and price entitlement on Bitcoin and Ethereum, something that you weren't able to do a month ago, six months ago. Mm. Um, you actually just answered one of the questions I had, which is the difference between an ETF and using a digital wallet. Obviously, you have certain fees in, in different types of, you have fees for the ETFs, but then you have fees in the digital wallet as well. Um, so what would you describe as like kind of the main benefit then? Is it is it security? Um, like why, why would people consider the ETF over, say, a digital wallet? Well, I, th I think there's sort of a few things. So one, it's um, the quality of the exchanges on the crypto side probably isn't there in the same way it is in the traditional exchanges that we have, such as Chayx, um, or, you know, looking overseas, you know, the NASDAQ, S&P 500, S&P, for example, you know, there are the New York Stock Exchange. You have this ability where you think about the exchange quality, and we have regulated, secure, 
very high quality exchanges. You talk about custody and you know, mentioning talking about Coinbase and the custodial services that we're using, they are institutional grade quality. So because we're operating this fund in that framework, we are accessing institutional grade quality custodial services, something that the general investor that invests in cryptocurrencies may not be able to have access to. You know, we have insurance on our wallets. Um, you know, there are those sorts of things that you just don't get access to. You've then got the idea of the, the security um, aspect and the security problems and that vulnerability. And, you know, that's a key part, you know, how vulnerable is your digital wallet, is that exchange to hacking? And, you know, from our perspective, the way in which we've approached this is to make it as secure as possible. And we're working with 21ches who are, you know, as Ophelia's talked about, they're the leading um, sort of fund manager for cryptocurrencies, not only in Bitcoin and Ethereum, but across all, you know, all cryptocurrencies. And then you've got things like, you know, a, a general investor that goes directly into cryptocurrencies that loses their private key. You know, you've got that example, that story of, um, I think, to someone in Scotland who thinks that he's thrown out his computer, which has his private key, which is holding, you know, 200, 300 million US dollars worth of Bitcoin but it's sitting in a tip somewhere and he's willing to pay 10, 20% to the council and to people to go through digging through rubbish to essentially find that private key. You know, there's another example and, and uh, a story I've heard of, if you're typing in your key and you get it wrong, you know, the cat jumps up on the keyboard and gets it wrong and just, you happen to, you know, for whatever reason, you've lost it. You've lost all that money. And that's a big risk. So, you know, if we can provide an easy solution, well, then that's great. And if you think about the story of how 21 shares started, you know, Ophelia and Hanny, who started up 21 shares a few years ago, they started it because their mothers wanted to invest in Bitcoin and there was no easy way to do so. Yeah, I think that's a fascinating story. Um, so how do you, with this ETF or with both ETFs, in, you know, you've got Ethereum, you've got Bitcoin, how do you see investors using them in a portfolio? So we've talked, you and I have talked in the past about the core versus satellite or core and satellite approach. So, and then there's like tactical ETFs as well. How do you see these ETFs fitting into a portfolio? The, the way we see cryptocurrencies in general, especially Bitcoin and Ethereum is, it's not an asset class that we can ignore anymore, but it's still an asset class that people need to be, you know, realize it has high volatility. Um, mm. We've seen it of late in the past few months, you know, swings of upwards of 10, 15% within a few days of each other. And that's something people need to be aware of. So it is how we see it. It's a growth alternative. So alternatives generally form a smaller allocation in terms of your wider portfolio. So generally people, depending upon their risk profile, alternatives are between five to 10%, but alternatives can be made up of, again, you diversify within your alternatives bucket. So you don't just go all into cryptocurrencies, you diversify around that. So we see gold as a defensive alternative and people take between two, three, 5% of their portfolio into, um, into physical gold because of its, um, you know, it's, you know, how, how it's structured as a hedge against equity volatility or inflation or interest rates. And for Bitcoin or Ethereum for that matter, it is seen as a growth alternative. So it's sort of a 1%, 2% allocation. There is a lot of volatility within this cryptocurrency still. There's a lot of risk. So it's for those investors that have that risk appetite that are willing to invest for the long term as well, because you do see you know, trading of cryptos 
there can be, you know, trying to time that mm. can be, you know, very risky and can be fraught with, with a lot of danger as well. So that's something that we, you know, need to make sure that investors really understand. Um, this is simply a vehicle for them to easily access Bitcoin, easily access Ethereum, but it is a very, very small allocation within your portfolio. Mm. And that's, that's, yeah, that's true, isn't it, right? The, the volatility is very high. It is an alternative type of investment. It should be considered as such. So, Kanish, I think you've done a great job of explaining the risks, mate. Thanks for joining me. No, thank you for having me. Ophelia, thanks for taking some time to join me on the show. It's great to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm hoping today we can talk about um, cryptocurrencies, about blockchain technologies, about all of that fun stuff, this really exciting space for a lot of investors, for a lot of people that are speculators, for a lot of people that are technologists as well. But before we get to that, I'm hoping to learn a little bit more about you. I, I saw a, a, a news snippet, and I think it was on the Twitter feed of 21 shares that showed that you were in Forbes 30 under 30 list. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that is right. Yeah. How did that come to be? Um bit of a circuitous path and I guess you could maybe take it to how I got into crypto. Um, I'd been in finance even before I started this company uh, and had been following crypto fairly loosely for a number of years prior to that. Um, I am probably one of the few people who can claim the first person to speak to me about Bitcoin was my mother. Um, (laughs) And my mom was talking to me about how she thought there should be a global currency and she was planning to invest in a technology company that would make ATMs to distribute Bitcoin. Um, This was in like 2014, 2015, super early um, for her to be looking at that kind of stuff. And then simultaneously or early 2014, people started coming out with um, wanting to discuss this in class. I was in college and then people would bring in interesting technologies and this is one of them. And I sort of took a second and went, huh, that's interesting. Um, I, loved finance and I loved sort of the mechanics and plumbing of how financial systems work. And it, it's a very sort of interesting application. Um, and that's sort of how I found myself, at least following the blockchain space, ended up founding the company a number of years later to solve the problem of the fact that my mom knew about crypto, thought crypto was a great idea. 2014 was contemplating investments in crypto adjacent services 2015, but didn't feel comfortable doing basic things like buying Bitcoin because of the wallet infrastructure involved. And so she needed a product, a packaged product for her. Um, and my co-founder was having a similar problem. So we decided to start the company. And I, that's, I guess, sort of how I ended up on that list. <laughs> a bit of a roundabout story, but. Yeah. Are, are you surprised by how successful it's been? hard question because the answer is obviously yes because it's been more successful and bigger than my wildest dreams however on the other side no because if you actually believe this thesis of a cryptocurrency can be and all of the innovation that's coming into this space and you are actually in it in the day-to-day and you realize what adoption means and what all of these applications can really mean for the future of the world you sort of want to say no because obviously the space was going to be successful. I think I'm constantly flabbergasted that like we were, you know, able to execute against that vision, but I think it's sort of a yes and no at the same time. Mm. Mm. Well, it's, 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 I, I would say early days for, for you and the business, because there's so many interesting, exciting things coming down the pike that um, lead me to believe that the future looks a lot brighter than the past. So 
hopefully that means you're in you're in pole position and and you can continue to capitalize on it i thought that the the first part of this conversation should be setting the groundwork for our listeners so basically helping them understand the i guess the problem that is being solved at large by blockchain technologies and then diving into um, some of the cryptocurrencies that we wanted to talk about but the first thing i guess that's important for people to understand is how like what money is we learn this in at, you know an undergraduate at finance school what constitutes currency what makes money money i'm hoping that you can define that for us and um, because i think that provides a good lead way into what blockchain technologies actually do Yes. So there are a few parts to this answer. And I think the first is what people teach us in school money is and the practical applications of what money does in the world as it currently stands are actually quite different. And at least I'm I'm American and Italian, and at least in the cultures I grew up in, um, what we teach in schools from a financial literacy perspective is actually not a really fulsome picture of what money is supposed to do or, or how it actually works or what it means inside of our current um, economy. Um, monetary policy has always sort of felt like a black box, but fundamentally money is intended to be a means of exchange. And that is it. That, that is the end of the most elementary definition of money is a way of conveying value from person A to person B in a way that doesn't require barter. So it used to be, you know, I have two chickens, you have a cow, let's trade. Money allowed us to abstract away from that. That was it. That was the beginning of money. And that is fundamentally what money is there to do. It is there to say, we all agree that this thing has value and we create that thing's value um, mostly based on trust primarily. Um, And there's, if you look at the history of money, um, there's a lot less consistency than people realize. So like the evolution of debt markets, the evolution of equity markets, the evolution of all of these things, which most people sort of loosely connect to the concept of money, the concept of finance broadly has been evolving for hundreds of years. And most of the instruments we see today have precursors that you know go back to 1500s. Um, and that's really interesting because it, it sometimes confuses the narrative where at the end of the day, Mm. all it is, is a thing that we've all agreed to believe in that lets person A and person B agree on a trade of some kind um, without needing to have a cow. Because if I have two chickens and you have a cow, but I really want a pig, how do we actually conduct any kind of business? That was it. That was the original solution that money was for. Um, so a little bit of a basic answer, but if you think about it, all money is supposed mm. to do is help you keep record that way. How about then people that would think that, you know, money is a store of wealth. I guess that's probably another definition that some textbooks teach us to. It does, but it always comes back to that trust question. So there's a really common misconception that money has always been produced by government. It's actually not strictly true. Initial forms of money, um, if you look at there were literally giant stone uh, wheels that were used in, in lap, mm. which is a very common example of the evolution of money. Um, people have used everything from beads to seashells to paper to now zeros and ones on a computer um, to sort of demarcate this 
store of value and ability to transfer value amongst ourselves based on this third party thing that we trust. There's the book um, by Yuval Harari, which is Sapiens, which is a book that I always think of when I think of this concept, which is that basically it's like the stories we tell each other that lead us to believe in something, which, you know, it's just kind of like, it's like a fiction, right? Like he made the point of company structures as in like legal companies having their own rights in a, in a, in a sense, they don't actually exist. They're just things that we tell each other exist and therefore they do exist. And um, it's a really interesting thing. And, and in anticipation for this conversation, I was just thinking about some of the things that have happened in the past, like things like the, the gold standard, um, the pound, the US federal, uh, the US greenback, um, all of these currencies became basically reserve currencies for the world and allowed us to transact because we believed in the value of that. Um, here in Australia, we haven't really had the issue like some countries have where, you know, currencies are debased or exhibit hyperinflation and those types of things that we've seen overseas in some recent times. Um, and I think that adds a whole nother level to it because we can't really comprehend in most Western societies what it would be like to not have trust in the currency. You know, when we pick up a, a note, I don't have one here, like a bank note, um, we trust that we can go down to the coffee shop and we can get a coffee for that. Um, but if we don't trust in that money, then all of a sudden the system seems broken. But can I ask that, the, the, I guess the, the, the key link that we need to make here is the difference between what we associate with physical money and having that trust and then the association with digital currency, which is a programmable, programmable currency you can send overseas instantly, et cetera. Can you, um, like some people some, sometimes make the, I guess the example of Bitcoin being like gold, would, would you agree with that? And then can you just explain the basic mechanics of how they might be different? Sure. So I, I do agree with that. I think Bitcoin and gold are quite good corollaries for each other. They are fundamentally limited in supply in a very structural way. We can't really make more gold. We can't really make more Bitcoin. That's sort of how that works. It's capped at some point. It's fungible. It's divisible. So you can easily, you know, two gold bars are quite similar. Gold can be changed at the leaving aside sort of bar numbering, which I realize is a thing, but honestly, let's go with gold coins. They have serial numbers on them, but fundamentally you can trade them and they're relatively fungible. Um, but what you have, and it's fundamentally a store value, that's actually gold is totally decoupled from any real world use case. People love to point to like, well, there's industrial uses for gold. Yes, but it's not a driver of gold's value. Mm. It's not how people conceive of it. It's not how it's priced. It's kind of irrelevant. Um, and so I think in a lot of both the mechanics of the market that are really based on supply and demand around a fixed amount of something that exists where it's able to store value for you in some way um, that is not directly linked to your home currency. It's done in a way where you're actually able to, if you think about gold, transact at a more global level. Now, granted, the downside is you would have to ship a gold bar somewhere. With Bitcoin, you can actually do that much more easily. So the transferability, fungibility, and divisibility of Bitcoin is substantially better than gold. But fundamentally, they do share a lot of those properties, both in terms of market construction, as well as ultimately their use case. Mm. I think a lot of investors think that gold and Bitcoin is similar just from a portfolio construction perspective, because you can throw gold into a portfolio 
based on historical results at least that show that they're not correlated so there are some use cases in, a, in an investor's portfolio as well um yeah the, the one the one thing that is kind of a, a mystery to most people is i guess who is satoshi nakamoto and also what did they do he or she or they do that really set the scene for allowing blockchain technologies to come into existence um, I'm hoping you can break this down a little bit easier than I can, because I've got to admit the original paper, when I read it a few years ago, it was kind of a little bit out there for me, but it kind of comes, kind of comes together, um, I think. And um, there's this idea that there's a Byzantine generals problem, which kind of makes sense to me as well, but hopefully you can, can clear that up for our listeners. Um, sure. So that is a complicated set of questions. Common wisdom says that Satoshi developed Bitcoin in response to the 2008 financial crisis, or at least really began developing um, mm. Bitcoin through 2007-2008 as a response to things like Lehman going bankrupt. And the reason to build it was really because fundamentally there was a lack of trust in a specific community, in this case, mostly people who were really into cryptography, um, around what banks were actually doing. Um, the version 1.0 was launched with the idea that it wasn't right or fair that someone like a central bank would bail out a bank, um, that that wasn't the right way to do things. Um, and so a sort of a response to this idea that, well, any government can print any amount of money they want, that's not a system that this subgroup people could have trust. And so Satoshi Nakamoto developed a essentially way of creating peer-to-peer -peer money without needing a government in the middle of it. And the way in which you solve for that is a kind of complicated, well, not terribly complicated, I guess, um, mathematical problem called the Byzantine generals problem, which some people might've heard of. Um, the really simple way to think of the Byzantine generals problem from a purely computational way, like this is a problem of computers that computers generically have. Um, so imagine you're a general in an army and you are commanding a division of that army. Uh, and you're trying to set siege to a town. Um, as a group, you have to decide, are you going to attack or are you going to retreat? But the city will only fall if everybody participates at the same time. Now, so for example, if only half of the generals attack, they're gonna lose. Everybody needs to attack together. Um, and so you have to do this via some kind of messenger, right? To help create this consensus, you need to send messages, but someone could insert an incorrect message and cause one of these generals not to actually go forward with this. And how do you solve this issue? It's called the Byzantine generals problem. And it was a longstanding issue in the field of research around distributed systems. Everybody needs to act together. How do you make sure that's happening where even one bad actor doesn't impact this structure? So mm. the 
Satoshi Nakamoto really is the first person to come up with an actually functional solution to this problem or group of people, whatever. Um, and that's what they call the blockchain. And the way they're able to solve that problem involves how blockchains develop consensus or an agreement between all the different miners or validators, depending on the system, for solving this problem. And so I, I think the, this is a really interesting thing for people to understand is, is basically that to, to make it le hopefully less technical for people that don't understand it, effectively when you have money, the banks or the central bank approves that money and that currency and says, yes, this money is going from Ophelia to Owen um, and it is you know, an Australian or US dollar to Australian dollar transaction, therefore it's cleared. Whereas on blockchain, there are nodes around the outside. If you think about it like that, that everyone on the everyone at those nodes has to say, yes, that money is being sent from her to him. And therefore it's okay to clear that it's done. Um, but sometimes not everyone agrees. And so that's where the uh, Byzantine generals problem solves that kind of issue. Is that, would that be a fair assumption, a fair kind of summary of it? Yes. And basically the way a blockchain is able to do that is that the bookkeepers, which is sort of what you're talking about here, who are essentially miners, collect a bunch of those transactions, a bunch of Ophelia's sending to Owens all over the world and group them into something called a block, which is the transactional size that can be added to a blockchain. That's sort of where the nomenclature comes from. Um, they're then able to basically do a really long, cryptography problem, so basically a math problem, where the inputs and outputs of that are determined from the blockchain. That's where the chain part comes in, which is the, the output of the last block is the input into the next one and critical to conducting those calculations. So any change anywhere in that chain will actually cause an incorrect answer. And so all of these miners, which you might've heard of in the context of Bitcoin mining, do all these really complicated math problems to try to be the first one to add a block to the chain, to find an actual solution to that math problem. And they get paid for that. They get paid in Bitcoin and that's actually how new Bitcoin gets created. So that's how, you know, maybe if I was to send money to you overseas, I might do it through something like the Swift network or something like that, where it costs me, I don't know, say, I don't know how much it costs. Let's say it costs me 20 or $50 to send that amount of money. It might take a few days. It has to go through a fair bit of clearing to get to you. Whereas you don't necessarily have to worry about that with a global currency built on a blockchain because there is no in, there's no intermediary to want to snap up some of that money and take time and, and do all the checks and balances because everyone else is already clearing that as it goes through, so to speak. And so um, how about then when it comes to things like supply and demand? I, we've heard that, you know, 21 shares, I just spoke to you off air, I got confirmation of this. The reason you named it 21 shares is because there's at... I think it's, is it 2040 or 2041 or something like that? When we expect there's going to be 21 million Bitcoin in circulation. Why is that kind of limited supply of Bitcoins important to the, the ecosystem? So we were previously talking about definitions of money from school. This is a, you know, your econ 101 class, mm -hmm. um, maybe from college. Uh, the price of anything is essentially set by a supply and demand curve, right? Um, and, and the way you can think of that is if you were to take a hundred random people and ask them how much they were willing to pay for a carton of milk, um, 
the maximum they would pay for a carton of milk. You would get a set of different numbers from that group of people and that can actually be plotted as a line. That's gonna be your demand line. On the supply side, you can you know, make that carton of milk and sell it at a variety of different price points. And that's gonna create an intersection between these two lines on a chart, which is actually the current prices of it. But if you increase the supply, you actually move along, you actually shift these curves, you can shift these curves in and out by essentially either creating more of something or restricting its supply. And so because Bitcoin has a finite number that will never change, even as demand for it grows, more people are using it, there are more use cases, even as um, you know, the price of it increases, you still can't make more. It's just the number that there is. Now, granted right now, I think there's maybe about 19 million in actual circulation and that number is continuing to grow over time, but that is very much still in the development uh, to reach that cap. Once you reach the 21 million, that's all there's ever gonna be. And that constrained supply um, helps drive value. It's a form of scarcity. Um, I was always, I was always a little bit, um, I guess, I just misunderstood this this problem right a bit because I thought, well, the miners need the price to go up and the kind of ecosystem needs the price to go up because then that incentivizes the miners to keep mining, and then everyone that holds Bitcoin too um, will also grow more wealthy because people are willing to pay more and so on and so forth. But one one thing I. I I didn't really prepare this in, in, in our show notes, but um, what happens when we get to 21 million? Like what, what happens when it gets to 21 million Bitcoin circulation? What do the miners do? So miners aren't exclusively paid in the creation of the new, like not all of the money that miners necessarily receive. You can also have things like transaction fees and mining costs where mm-hmm. you pay essentially a transaction fee to the network. So over time, that is one of the ways in which they will be able to continue to make money. And one of the things that you see is that every four years, uh, and this is where the four-year cycle in crypto comes from, um, you actually see a reduction in the minor reward. And when that happens, you typically see large increases in price because you're reducing selling pressure, right? Mm. If you're a miner, you're you're mining Bitcoin, but you still need to pay the electrical bill, which means you're selling that to cash or you're selling it to whatever so that you can pay your electric company for the power that you use, just as a very simple example. That means there's constantly a steady flow of people selling Bitcoin into the market in order just to fund the network itself. Whenever that halving happens, you actually release a lot of the selling pressure that had been in the order book. Mm. So we've talked a bit here about Bitcoin, and I think most people are familiar with Bitcoin, or at least the idea of it. Um, people see it as a store of wealth. You know, we can put money into it, and therefore, it, you know, it, it carries value and hopefully increases in time. But people can also use it to, if they want to, they can send money to friends or family overseas or people that, you know, do some work for them. But there are other you know, forms of cryptocurrencies, which are more effective at doing certain things, which are still probably for some people early on. Um, but, you know, for those like yourself, I've seen this happening for years. I'm hoping you can fill us in on basically crypt, uh, Bitcoin versus Ethereum 
and kind of what the different use cases are there, because those are the two big ones as we have them today. Although I was reading a, a blog post, the latest quarterly on your website, which suggests there are, you know, in, especially in decentralized finance and um, many different use cases coming that demand different coins and different cryptocurrencies and, and different blockchains. So let's just tackle the first two, Bitcoin versus Ethereum. Can you kind of flesh those out for us? Yeah, absolutely. I think we've, we've spent a bunch of time talking about Bitcoin, and I think that's in large part the easiest thing for people to understand. It's just digital money. It's digital gold. Mm. You can use it in transactions where you would want to do that. So primarily store value. Ethereum is a completely different thing. And I think this is one of the awful parts of using cryptocurrency as a catch-all term. And it's perfectly mm. fine to do so, but you lose so much of the detail. Um, Ethereum works like buying credits for a supercomputer. It's the actual way to think about it. Um, the value of the Ethereum networks is based on something called a smart contract. And drop the smart part, sort of not relevant. It's just a code-based contract where it, says, where it says, if X occurs, then Y. And you can make them incredibly complicated, but fundamentally all it is, is if X, then Y. Um, if I drive my car into a pole, then my insurance company will pay me. Th that type of thing. And we all know insurance contracts are gonna be, you know, a two inch thick wad of paperwork, but fundamentally that's what it is, right? That, that's how car insurance works. Um, Smart contracts are very similar. So if you just think of them as if X, then Y, they need a computer to run them. So how, when X happens, how do you ensure that Y is going to happen? That's what Ethereum does. It lets you create these contracts as computer programs that operate on a decentralized network where automatically, if a certain set of circumstances or a certain set of actions are taken on a blockchain, Y will occur on the back end. And Ether, which is, the coin that is Ethereum um, is used to make that happen. So you pay gas costs, which is the transactional cost where you're paying the network to process your transactions for you. Um, and you're paying for that computing power that you've used to enact the if X then Y um, logic inside of this computer network. And in large part to make it even less tech oriented because fundamentally that, that's not the important part here. It's a commodity. You can think of Ethereum as a primary input for the creation of contracts. So I want car insurance. I want um, to insure my crypto holdings. I want to buy a work of art. I want to participate in some sort of financial transaction. Any one of those things can be coded into a smart contract that exists inside of this network. And Ethereum is a primary input in making any one of those things work. You can think of it much more similarly to a consumable commodity than to a currency in some respects. So um, it's almost like if you think about the rebar that goes into building your house. Mm -hmm. So that's a, that's a wonderful example. Um, so how then do investors benefit from owning um, you know, if they invest in an Ethereum ETF, for example, how how do they benefit from that? Is it similar to Bitcoin in the sense that it's you know demand driven, um, more people using it, more people writing contracts, more people using computing power, needing computing power that pushes up the price? Is that how people can think about that? Yes. So what you can think of is two really popular trends in the past year have been DeFi, which stands for decentralized finance. Mm -hmm 
and NFTs, which are uh, non-fungible tokens. Um, we, we, if you want to participate in the infrastructural layer that's powering these things, that's going to be Ethereum. And so the more people build on it, the more people use these networks, the more valuable the computational power of those networks becomes, the more valuable Ether is. Because fundamentally, if you want to deploy a smart contract, you actually need to buy Ethereum to do it. You want to interact with it, you're buying Ethereum again. That's a necessary component of actually interacting with these um, smart contracts. So in order to, yeah, so in order to be, to be using this, you have to you know, buy it, you have to buy some to use it basically. And therefore, um, you know, that influences prices. If more people are using it to do contracts, I know a lot of developers that are using this to, they will um, conduct, they will build projects and then they will get, they will need to access um, the Ethereum blockchain for certain things. And then that creates activity in it as well. And I, this is, you know, people all over the world doing this. How about then some of the things, you know, some of the things that we've seen recently, you mentioned there, which is NFTs, which is this, you know, people just associate it with funny uh, display pictures on social media, um, weird kind of pictures of apes, uh, people that, you know, maybe don't really understand what's going on here. They just hear NFT and they think of those pictures of apes. Um, can you can you kind of break that down for us? And we were having a, a brief chat before we, we hit record about some of the examples that uh, maybe hit home, just how powerful this is and how it can um, form the backbone of its own like micro economies and you know play into this idea maybe one day of things like the metaverse and things like that um yeah absolutely so i think the first part to understanding nfts is to realize that all an nft means is a non-fungible token it's a again it's an, a computational standard that has been mm -hmm. applied so we were talking about ethereum we were talking about bitcoin one of the major value propositions is fungibility any two Bitcoin are fungible. They're the same. Um, this is the opposite of that. Every single one of these is different and conveys mm. rights over something specific. Um, and therefore, the most popular use cases that we're seeing for NFTs right now, although they are absolutely not exhaustive for what that type of technology can be, right now you're seeing a lot of um, art. So things like Board Ape Yacht Club, things like CryptoPunks that people might have heard of. Mm -hmm. um, that group is really based on a couple of tenants. It's sort of like buying a work of art is the, probably the easiest way to think of it. It's a work of art that also sort of gives you a membership club to a community of other people who are doing similar things. And then that artwork, in the same way artwork can be licensed in other places. So if you think about a piece of music that is sold to a movie producer. They don't own all of the rights, but they have the reproduction rights to a specific piece of music for a specific movie. There's a similar type of thing that's happening around those types of art artistic works where you're actually able to do what essentially amounts to forms of rights management. And it actually generates income within the community that they're then able to do certain things with. Um, events, clubhouses, all, all sorts of different things around that. Um, so that's sort of one use case that's quite popular and has a lot of imagery that people might be familiar with, the apes who are talking about being one of them. Um, on the other hand, you have another major trend in NFTs right now, which is uh, gaming, um, video mm. games. So, you know, we were talking about this just before that, you know, some of your viewers might know this, um, 
when we were younger, World of Warcraft was like a really big deal. And you could buy, you could both create and build characters and you could buy like equipment for those characters. And then if you built a really cool character, someone might actually pay you for your login information over time. Um, same kind of concept except done via an NFT. So your ownership of your character isn't your username and password, it's actually your ownership of this thing that conveys rights. Um, examples of that would be things like Axie um, or uh, Axie Infinity, which is a video game, um, Decentraland, Sandbox. These are games where the idea is to, you either own a character, you can also own land in some of these sort of metaverse spaces um, to actually allow you to have that ownership over something in a metaverse or something in a video game. Um, and it's still in early stages of development, but is also quite promising and adds this different um, perspective to NFTs that go sort of beyond just the art and community elements that most people might be familiar with. Mm, because in, in you know the physical world where we know that we can buy and sell things, we have currency in our pockets, on our phones, et cetera, but we also have things that are unique, right? So we needed NFTs to come along to say, this is a unique ownership right of something um, that can be then transferred to someone else. So for me, that makes a lot of sense. And we've seen this in gaming for a long time with like microtransactions and things like that, where normally if you're inside, say, I don't know, Call of Duty or you play Fortnite or something, you would have to pay someone centrally to have access to something. So you'd have to pay the, the, the publisher of the game to have access to an avatar or something like that. But here we can see them being traded between users. Um, so we've talked a bit about the blockchain itself, the, I guess some of the more interesting things like, like Bitcoin, Ethereum. Uh, there are many other cryptocurrencies that people should be aware of, but um, for the sake of time, I'm just interested to pick your brain on what are, the, what are the things that you're most excited about? What are the things that you, you are seeing um, from where you sit that people probably haven't really clued onto yet, um, which could be really exciting developments for, I guess, the crypto community in general, for technologists in general? Is there anything that you can think of off the top of your head that you think, oh, wow, this is a, this is a, a big thing that could change the way we do X, Y, or Z in the future? Yeah, absolutely. So I think one thing everybody needs to realize it is painfully early. It's painfully early in the evolution of this technology. And if you look at it and compare it to, you know, things like the adoption of the internet, it, it's doing well and it's progressing at an incredible pace, but we're still in the first chapter of the book. Uh, and fundamentally, that means a lot of the projects and products and things like that are the first versions of things that have never existed before. Um, I mentioned earlier, I'm really into like financial plumbing and financial infrastructure. Mm. So clearly the thing that would be really cool to me is DeFi um, and what it means to be able to put something like a loan on chain. So I can lend you money against something. I can lend you Bitcoin against Ethereum and I can do it in a fully decentralized way where I can rely on a smart contract where if the value of the Bitcoin you posted declines to less than 100% of the value of the Ethereum I'm lending you against it, then it'll automatically default on your loan and pay me. Mm. That's fascinating. It'll immediately go into a liquidation. That is a fascinating concept that you would even be able to do that. Um, decentralized exchanges, things like Uniswap, actually allowing people on a peer-to-peer -peer basis to trade tokens. Um, things like... 
people are building out decentralized options trading protocols for the first time, actually moving away from some of the less value additive plumbing. So things like Uniswap um, run on a type of software called an automated market maker, AMM for short in the crypto community. Mm -hmm. And typically what it is, is it's just, imagine a bag of A, of apples and a, a bag of pears. And you, people are buying and selling through these pools constantly. All that actually is, is there are market makers who make a lot of money to maintain our traditional securities infrastructure. And they're trading constantly back and forth on NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange and SIBO and ASX and CHIX and they get paid to maintain those order books. This is a way of instead of paying a third party to do that, giving everybody the ability to actually supply liquidity to the market, which is mm. really interesting because fundamentally that's an incredibly lucrative financial transaction that previously would never have been available to your average user. Um, that's really interesting. But those types of things where you're actually able to democratize access while building out infrastructure that works just as well as what we have. Um, granted, DEX's decentralized exchanges are still developing liquidity, but fundamentally, from a technical perspective, this is a very good way of solving a very costly problem in finance. And I think you're going to see more and more of that in crypto over the next months and years. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I think from where you sit, it's particularly fascinating because um, having that ability, you know, a lot of people don't understand how much trading back and forth goes on inside the the markets, whether that be debt markets, uh, equity markets, what have you, how much actually back and forth there is. And a, an example of that, and which is a, a point I want to touch on here at the end, which is inside an ETF, you have market makers that are constantly buying and selling. Like if we think about a normal ETF that invests in shares, for example, there are financial institutions that sit behind the scenes that are constantly buying or selling these baskets to create um, your units. If you're an investor and you're, you have a brokerage account and you see something appear in your account because you own the S&P 500 ETF, you see a unit appear in there. Well, that someone or something had to go and collect all those shares in the S&P 500, give you ownership rights and, and so on and so forth. Um, how does that work then when it comes to crypto and in particular bitcoin and ethereum etfs i i know you guys have done heaps of this over the years now i think 2018 or 2019 was the first etp that you launched is it as simple as just from a high level is it as simple as if i buy into one of these etfs or etps then you go and source the the particular currency whether it's bitcoin or ethereum and then that's held at a custodian and that is kind of like my my linkage to the ownership of the, the currency. Is that, is that, it seems like super simplistic. I'm sure there's a lot more to it, but is that kind of how I can think about it? Yes. So the way you can think about it is it's exactly the same as how a gold ETF works, which fundamentally is you're buying a share of the ETF on the secondary market. So, you know, an ASX or a CHIX in Australia. Um, someone is aggregating all of that demand and then they're actually creating new units of that ETF by providing Bitcoin into the fund. So they will put Bitcoin in a custodial account, they get shares back and they're able to send them to you. Um, mm -hmm. And that's how it'll turn up in your account. And 
it's a really straightforward process. And the question we often get around this is, well, then why, why ETFs? Um, it comes down to the fact that Bitcoin and Ethereum fundamentally run on different infrastructure. Um, the best corollary I've ever come up with is there's a, a joke that's frequently told in finance about a hedge fund manager who goes away for the weekend, doesn't appropriately manage his futures exposure and accidentally has an oil tanker delivered to the office on Monday morning hmm. because it's a physically delivered future and oops, he forgot to close his position and now he's got an oil tanker on NASDAQ. What does he do? Worth millions, right? Because that's sort of how that works. How do you deal with this? Um, that is the problem of crypto in a nutshell. We are expecting people to know what security best practices are for an asset that is fundamentally different at a custodial level. This is not like having a bank account. This is not like having a securities account. This is a very different thing. And it requires much more attention to your own like data hygiene. Like, how are you securing this stuff? Do you have 2FA? Are you using a text message for 2FA? That is actually not great. People should not do that. Use something like Authy or Google Authenticator, but that's not necessarily, that's the pretty base layer of simplistic things you would need to do to appropriately begin the process of thinking about custody and crypto. And most people aren't even doing that. So it, it's fundamentally just different rails. And the goal of 21 Chairs always has been to promote accessibility in the space and help get people off of zero. Buy some Bitcoin, talk, learn about ETH, learn about these things and, and start getting off of having absolutely no exposure to the space so that you're invested mm. in it. Because fundamentally, the whole purpose of this is democratizing access to finance and democratizing access to, honestly, monetary policy. And you can't do that if people can't get involved. And fundamentally, when you think about an ETF, it's a really nice way of doing that for people without requiring them to learn how to use entirely new systems, new trading systems, new security systems. Are you going to custody it yourself? Are you going to trust somebody else? Do you know who is actually trustworthy? So not all crypto exchanges have the same security practices. Are you actually going to go and diligence what they're doing with your crypto? This isn't a bank. They, they don't have the same service offerings in the same way. And it requires quite bluntly, a lot of work. And so this is a way of abstracting that away. We do that for you. We make sure that you're you know, custodying with a safe custodian, that those assets are there every single day, that someone is checking that you know, this is still the absolute best technology you can use to safely store crypto. Someone is checking that you know, every transaction that's happening is validated and verified four times over and you know you didn't accidentally flip an e and an r in the wallet address and now you've sent it off to a dead address that you can't recover from that's the piece and the reason for an etf to exist it's just a simplified way of achieving ultimately what i think the promise of crypto is which is giving everyone access to the space but in finance broadly but if you want everyone to have access that means everybody needs to feel comfortable participating and ETFs allow us to do that. Mm. We see here in Australia that the the use of ETFs or ETPs, however you want to frame it, ETFs, um, and particularly those focused on crypto recently have been very, very popular. Um, even those that don't have direct exposure, which is what we've seen recently, um, the ETFs from uh, 21 shares and ETF securities would provide that direct exposure to people 
which is really interesting. There is one thing there that maybe I just, for peace of mind of our listeners, I might double click on, which was just um, around custody. So you mentioned how important that is. So just to confirm, when someone buys one of these ETFs, the, the actual crypto itself is held by a third-party custodian. Is that correct? Yes. And that's really important just because then there's kind of like more accountability throughout what actually goes on behind the scenes, right? Exactly. And, and that's where we spend most of our time. So we spend a lot of time doing the nuts and bolts of, is this still the best option technologically? The space is moving so fast. There's innovations every three to six months. Like, is this mm. still the best possible option and the safest way to store these assets? That's an ongoing question. Um, the, the way in which we do the monitoring, the way in which we do clearing and settlement, it's it's very involved um, deliberately uh, because it's one, safer that way. And, and two, it's taken us years to refine these processes to a point where we can say, you know, this is structured in a way where, you know, yes, you can create and redeem every day. Yes, you can come in and out of these products. Yes, it's going to behave exactly the way we think it should under a range of market conditions. So... Uh, Forks, hash wars, airdrops. Um, there's a number of things that can happen on a blockchain that are unique to a blockchain. And to have you know, a process and an operating infrastructure and custody that's been battle tested through those cycles is really important. Hmm. Well, that's fan- fantastic, Ophelia. You've, you've taken us through basically everything like a primer on uh, blockchains and the core cryptocurrencies that people should be familiar with. And you've done it in less than 50 minutes. So I've got to say that's pretty impressive. Um, and there's so much for people to learn. I know 21 Shares has this kind of educational hub, which we can put links in the show notes to. Um, the obviously, obviously, the partnership with ETF Securities is fantastic too. So I'll provide all the links in the show notes. Um, so on behalf of our, our listenership, Ophelia, thanks for taking some time to join me today. Thank you so much. I, I love talking about these things and I love doing this kind of stuff. Um, my company committed actually before we even started the company that one of the mm-hmm. core tenants was to provide high quality free information about crypto. So we'll never right. charge for it, but this is a huge part of where we spend our time is making sure that people feel that they have the tools necessary to enter the space for the first time. So thank Wonderful. you for having me. Thank you.